0: Perhaps no other issue is as polarizing in our country today as the issue of sexuality. Our society has undergone a significant shift in how people perceive sex and the freedom people have to express themselves sexually. But is sex and sexual expression really left up to our own impulses and choices? Or are there boundaries to the sexual decisions that we make? Are we on a journey to discover our identity through sexual expression? or are we sexually broken and in need of healing so that we can experience the gift of sexual relationships in the manner that God intended? There is an answer to this question and the answer will provide the freedom that your heart has been searching for all along. If you need a Bible today, raise your hand. We're in Genesis chapter one, get your hand up high if you need a Bible and uh, we'll have our team come down put a Bible in your hands. If you don't know where Genesis is at, I'm really glad that you're here at church today. I mean it with all of my heart. I think that's awesome. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. So first book, first chapter, verse 26. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Why don't you all stand with me today as we read the word of God together. Say amen when you're there. The Bible says in verse 26 then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps all you creeps are on the earth so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you, God, that we can trust in your word. Thank you, God, that you've given us your word to lovingly draw us to yourself. God, we, our hearts today are full of questions. May your word, in the context of love and grace, Bring the answers today that we need in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Um, I want to say to you guys, one thing I love about our church is you guys are always engaged during the teaching. I mean, there's always feedback, and, um, and it blesses my heart. Sometimes, you know, as a preacher, I need that, um, and while I'm super thankful for it today, I just want you to be, I want you to be considerate today, all right? Um, we are a go-and-tell church which means that we mobilize you on Sunday morning with a message of God's Word, and you get up, and you go out, and you tell people how good Jesus has been to you. We are also a come-and-see church. By that, I mean there are people among us who are sincerely seeking answers to important questions that they have in life. They've been stirred, like some of you were stirred situations and circumstances have compelled them to take a step probably for some of you that you never thought you would take i mean you actually got up got in your car and drove to church and just that right crossing it's not like going from heaven to earth but man it's almost it almost felt like the same thing like a very very challenging decision for you To make and here you are you're present today in this room or maybe you're watching online and you're on a journey the reality is you're on a journey you're warming up to the things of god you're warming up to the people of god i think in today's culture especially people want to belong before they believe They want to be able to have an opportunity to settle in and get a feel for what Christianity is all about. And so therefore, church needs to be a place where people can sincerely seek God. For some of you, it wasn't as if, and I know this was the case for me. I went to church a couple of times, but man, when I hit rock bottom, I knew I needed God. So it was like, man, I came, it was one and done. I was in the kingdom and bam, you know, it was thank you, thank you Jesus. For some of you, it's weeks and months of God working and softening and and revealing himself to you. I think in today's society, people need to feel our grace before they will hear our truth. I think in today's society, people need to feel our grace before they will hear our truth. It's not that they don't want the truth. It's that they need to feel like they're in a place where they can be accepted and where they can be in this process on this journey, allowing God to minister to them. And I say all of that to also say I have a strong conviction I have a very strong conviction as a as a Christian as a preacher and a teacher of God's word my strong conviction is that I don't disguise the truth from you I don't disguise what I believe I'm not hiding anything from you I know that there are some who really kind of pull the old bait and switch you know they they get you they don't tell you the whole story they tell you enough to get you in and then somewhere down the road you get clobbered with some truth it's like wait a minute why didn't you tell me that on the front side. Well, my conviction is that we don't disguise or hide the truth of what we believe in this church. We share it with you sincerely and honestly because what we're pursuing with people is a relationship we're not here just to pacify our conscience by dropping truth we're not out in the world as christians sharing the truth in a way where it's like well i just need to check the box and say that i shared the gospel with somebody and so i'm just going to deposit the truth you know that's not the case we build relationships relationships are built on trust trust is built on truth and transparency and so i say all of that to you to say this um, today, I'll probably say some things that, that they, they might hurt a little bit. They might sting a little bit. I want you to be able to be in a place where you can say, I don't necessarily always agree with pastor, but one thing I know, he's going to always tell me what he believes. I can trust him to be authentic. I can trust him to be transparent. And so today, if what I say does stir you up, it's like a, it, it's a burr in your saddle, a little bit don't just get mad don't get up and leave don't go post on social media i've chosen to handle the topics that we're dealing with jesus's way you say well what is jesus's way jesus's way is grace and truth john said it like this he said and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth when we minister to people we need to minister in god's grace But it can't just be all grace, we also need to minister His truth. And it can't just be all truth. Jesus had this, and you read the Gospel accounts, you know, man, when He was confronted with people that everyone was marginalizing, everyone was rejecting, everyone had kicked to the curb and had said to them that they weren't even worthy of God. You know in those moments what He did Was He ministered grace and truth? You know, I, I just, this is not in my notes, but I'm compelled to say it to you today. I think of the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, like she was literally caught in adultery. She's dragged up to the temple and she's presented to Jesus and they were you know they were looking to test him and they were exploiting this woman and her situation to try to undermine Jesus and what does he do well you know the story he who let him who is without sin cast the first stone he stands before the woman he says woman where are your accusers those who condemn you she says they're not here he says neither do I condemn you grace go and sin no more truth and so we see him operating with grace and truth. I think that that's so important when we talk about the issue of sexuality because, you know, this issue is volatile in our culture. It's a volatile moment for the society that we live in. And this moment has been centuries in the making. Uh, no, he said, hey, listen, if you missed the last couple weeks, it's okay. No, it's not Okay. That was a joke, all right? You're like, dang, I'm in, I'm in trouble already. All of the teachings are building on each other. And so, you know, I, I walked through the, the shifting of our society over the course of centuries. I said to you, you know, there was a time where we were pre-Christian and then Christian and now post-Christian. I, I, I used phrases like we were built on the philosophy of modernism and now it's post-modernism. I say all of that to say, sometimes you know what we do is we look at the current moment that we're in, and it's like, dude, how did we get here? How did our society go so sideways? How is it that we are in a place today I never thought that we would be in? And I say to you today, this has been centuries in the making. And right now, um, from my perspective, I believe the fringes control the, na- the narrative. The fringes control the narrative. When it comes to the issue of sexuality, on the one hand, you have the Westboro Baptist Church people who are picketing with signs that say say God hates gays and their message is a message of condemnation and rejection. And then on the other side, you have those propagating, continuing to propagate the sexual revolution. And in that group, you have some militant people who are advancing a gay agenda and the idea of that group is to reshape the american perception of sex that with the issue of sexuality because we have highly charged fringes it is hard to sort that out sometimes when i'm talking to somebody who is dealing with sexual issues and maybe i'm talking to somebody who identifies as lay a lesbian gay or bisexual um, i'll say hey listen just to let you know i'm not I'm not into the Westboro Baptist brand, like that is not me, don't put me in that category. And sometimes they'll say to me, hey, listen, I'm not all about the militant gay agenda seeking to indoctrinate adults and children, so don't put me in that category either. And I think today, because the fringes seem to control the narrative, what happens is in the midst of all of that, people who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual and are seeking significant answers to the biggest questions in life, they get lost. They get caught up in this culture war. I think about also heterosexual people who think that somehow their satisfaction and meaning in life is going to come from a sexual relationship so they're going from one partner to another partner to another partner and they've got big questions in life and I think about the parent who is seeking to navigate their child through the sexual social influences that they're confronted with on a daily basis all I'm saying to you is this As we get down underneath the culture war, there are so many people that need to be ministered to with the love of Jesus Christ. That's true. And let me just say today, if I say something great about Jesus, you you can amen that for sure, all right? Um, I think in our postmodern culture today, identity... Identity is the postmodern pursuit for people today. Identity is the postmodern pursuit for people today. From the cultural perspective, if the highest value of our culture is self-discovery and self-expression, and you know that's the case. If you watch the movies and listen to the music, you know that the highest value of the culture today is self-discovery and self-expression and and since that is true, The highest ethic of our culture is tolerance. It's the desire to preserve and protect people's right to pursue self-discovery and self-expression. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, Well, think about what's at stake. Think about what's at stake. One of the most important questions a person can ask, who tells me who I am? And make no mistake about it, you might think today, you're an island, you operate independently, you're not influenced by anybody, you're gonna determine your own identity. Hey, listen, sorry, that's not the way that it works. There are voices in your life, voices coming from within. There are voices coming from without. And all of those voices are trying to shape the answer for you when you're asking, When you're asking the question, who tells me who I am? And my conviction today is that God should have something to say about that. God should have something to say about that. Sometimes, you know, as Christians, it's like we're we're dealing with all of this cultural angst, and we think, man, this is the worst time. This is the worst possible time. Why couldn't I have been born during the Jesus Revolution? Uh, You know, that was a pretty hard time, too. I don't think we're in the worst time i think we're in the best time i think we have great opportunities before us like stop listening to all the the bad press people today are open people today are seeking there is a spiritual interest in our society right now and the statistics are clear that people are open to talking about religion therefore we need to humbly graciously and with God's truth serve people in their search for identity Um, today is not let me tell you what today isn't today is not an explanation of the biblical point of view today certainly is not a defense of the biblical point of view concerning sexuality Um, it is an invitation Today, as we walk through Scripture, my hand is—and certainly God's hand—is not going like this. It is an open invitation. It's inviting you to come. And my approach today is this: I want to share with you the consistent message of Scripture concerning sexuality that has been the bedrock for the church's perspective on sexuality for two thousand years. We're going to go from from creation to kingdom. And the point is, ultimately the point is, to show you that Jesus provides the greatest answer to identity, value, and meaning. The prayer today is Psalm 34, verse 8, "'O taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him.'" And so if you're taking notes today, um, point number one is this. The creation account is the starting point for humanity's identity and value and supplies God's purpose and prescription for marriage and sexuality. You might say today, man, why is that the starting point? Is it because it's the first book in the Bible and it's the first chapter in the book? Well, maybe. But more than that, the, the Bible tells us in the creation account that every human being has worth in the eyes of God. Every human being has worth in the eyes of God. I can look into the eyes of someone who is gay or straight, rich or poor, a porn star or a pimp, and say, you're not worthless, you have value because you have been made in the image of God. That's good news. I have a friend who, um, he's, got a, he's got a great ministry, he ministers to celebrities, he's here in Vegas a lot, and he was at the airport, he was telling me this some time ago. While he was in the airport, he, saw, he recognized uh, one of the most significant male porn stars in the industry. You know that, that Vegas is a hub for that industry. And so, so he walked over to this guy, and, you know, this guy's life has totally fallen apart. There's no doubt about it. God is seeking to get his attention. He sat down right next to him. He looked him in the eyes and he said, hey, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that you are made in the image of God and you have value and you have worth. This is what the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You read the creation account and what you discover is that God, number one, is holy. other that God is transcendent, that while God permeates all things with His presence, He is altogether different from His creation. You discover from the creation account that men and women are equal. You discover from the creation account that everything that God did, all of His works were good. You discover that we've been given as humans, God's representatives, the responsibility to steward creation. And you discover, like we read already, that we have been made in the image of God. Not We're not animals. We're not just material We're not disposable, we've not been made in the image of an aardvark or an orangutan, we've been made in the highest image. And we've been made to love God and to love other people. In fact, as you read the creation narrative, it all, it's like a symphony, you know? And the apex of the creation symphony is the complementary union of Adam and Eve. Read it again from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, and you'll see that all of this is working to this beautiful high point, this apex, this symphony that comes to a crescendo. As the Bible says in Genesis 2.20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the lord god had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man then the man said this is this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman this is an old pastor joke i'm sorry to say it but you know pastors say adam when he first saw eve this was what he said when he he didn't give her a name he's like whoa man whoa man you guys still laugh at that I love you so much you're like poor guy poor guy stupid old jokes but you know we like them this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed as you read genesis chapter 2 verse 20 and on you discover there is a there is a design behind marriage and sexuality you discover that sex is for marriage in fact god uses such an interesting word as you read the narrative you know you discover uh, the bible says it is good it is good all these things that god does are good until um, god The word discover is wrong for God because you know, it's like God doesn't discover things. He knows all things, but God identifies. God identifies something that was not good and it's that Adam did not have a helper comparable to himself or suitable for him or fit for him. The word fit in the English Standard Version is interesting. It means like but opposite, similar but not. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, wait a minute, we're a lot of like, (laughs) but. Human like Adam, but female, so not. In fact, there is a, a rhythm in the creation narrative of like opposite, dark and light, day and night, sea and land, sun and moon, heaven and earth, male and female. Now, there are some today who argue Adam really just needed a human. It was Eve's humanity, not her gender, that made her a suitable helper, but you see from the story, it's more than just her humanity. It's also her gender. In fact, this story is the height, it's the apex expressing the union of otherness, and it becomes a timeless model. As, as the Bible says, therefore, man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast or cling to or be glued to, it's a very strong Hebrew word, or be cemented to his wife. And so as we look at this story, we discover both partners are human. Both will come from different families. Both are bound together in a lifelong commitment of marriage and both are sexually different god continued this foundational concept of image bearing into his creation and purpose for israel so we're just working our way through scripture right so you have the creation narrative you have the fall of humanity ultimately god selects abraham and sarah he creates from Abraham and Sarah a nation and then God gives self-revelation on the top of Mount Sinai God gives prescription for his people remember God created a nation to bear his image to the other polytheistic lost nations around them this was a national commission that was carried out with individual responsibility they were delivered from Egypt and there were all sorts of practices in Egypt that God did not want them to participate in anymore because God was calling them to be a nation that expressed His light, not a nation that walked in darkness. And you know, as you read the story of what happened in Exodus chapter 20, as, as Moses on the top of Mount Sinai is given the Torah, is given the law. 40 days 40 nights the cloud covering Sinai and there was lightning and thunder it was a powerful moment and the people began to think man what happened to Mo where'd Mo go and you know it was like well he's not coming back so you know we need to we need to we need to do something about it and so you know the story they brought their gold to Aaron Aaron uh put it in the melting pot created a golden calf set the golden calf up led the people in the worship of a false god. This is your God that delivered you from Egypt. And then all of the people, the Scripture says, started to participate in all sorts of sexual, inappropriate sexual relationships. Moses, mo, mo comes down and he sees all this nonsense and he breaks the, he breaks the tablets because, because he knows that God's, God's will for the nation was not that. God's will for the nation was not not that. God says in the book of Deuteronomy, speaking to his people, he's like, I didn't choose you because you were were such a big nation. I didn't choose you because of all of the assets that you brought to the table. You're small and insignificant and meaningless in in the scope of things. I chose you because I love you. I chose you because you're special. I chose you because you're mine. And as you are mine, and as you are special, I'm gonna reflect myself through you to the lost polytheistic nations around you so that they might see through your life and how you comport yourself that the monotheistic God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only true God. And so in the book of Leviticus, there is the holiness code for the people of God. It's all summed up in Leviticus 21 verse eight where the scripture says, God speaking, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Before we get to that comprehensive statement, there are all sorts of behavior that are prohibited among the nation of Israel, among the people of the nation. Behavior that when they were in Egypt was commonplace. It was part of the culture. Everyone is doing it. You can imagine you can imagine hearing the arguments. It's like, hey, man, everyone else is doing it. Why can't I do it? Well, God says, because you're a special people, you're a holy nation, you belong to me. And so as you go through Leviticus, you see that, that incest and adultery and child sacrifice and theft and lying, sex with the same sex, taking the Lord's name in vain, cursing the death, exploiting your neighbor, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hatred, All these things are prohibited because they were to be a special people. They were to bear the image of God. Now, when I share this with people, sometimes they're like, really, 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 dude? Are you serious, man? You are so outdated. You are so anachronistic. You are like a fossil. You're a fossil. No one (laughs) believes that anymore. No one believes that anymore. And then invariably, I've had people say to me, well, you know, God also prohibited the eating of shellfish. And so, Pastor, I know you love going to get sushi, and you probably drop a couple uh, clams and oysters, like, you know, why doesn't that apply today? And then if they're kind of savvy with the Old Testament and the argument, they'll say, well, you know, God also said that if you bump into a woman during her time of impurity, that you're ceremonially unclean. And so, from that framework, they seek to eliminate all of the laws that God has laid out in the Old Testament But I just want to encourage you to see the law in three categories. And and we're not forcing the law into these categories. This is true. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. Israel was given a civil law because they were a theocracy. They belonged to God. They weren't a monarchy. They weren't a democracy. They, They were governed by God. And so their civil law reflected that there was a ceremonial law because there was a system of sacrifices that they had to go through prescribed to the detail to the detail they had to go through this system of sacrifices by faith to atone or to cover for their sin Now, let me just say this, that the civil law does not apply because we're not a theocracy and the ceremonial law does not apply because we don't go through a system of sacrifices as Christians. We believe in one sacrifice that was made for all time by one man that was sufficient to cleanse us from all sin. His name is Jesus. That's what He did. But the moral law, listen, the moral law transcends times and cultures. The moral law is for all people, for all time. Jesus, Peter, and Paul use the moral framework of Leviticus to describe the life of the person who has stepped into the kingdom of God. In fact, today, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Turn to Matthew 19. Because Jesus uses the creation account as a cornerstone for marriage and sexuality as you're turning there today i just want to remind you that when jesus came he inaugurated the kingdom of god and made it available for all people for all people for jew for gentile for scythian for slave for male for female the opportunity to experience the power and influence of heaven itself has been made available to all of those, the Bible says, who will repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. You say, well, that's a heavy word here. Those are his words when he started his ministry. And when people take that step of faith and believe in Jesus, there's a heart change. Kingdom life begins to influence them. There's something that God does on the inside. Hey, make no mistake about it, some people just have the wrong paradigm for Christianity. Like you think that there are all of these laws that are governing our life and so we're hoping that somehow by by you know administering these laws personally and prohibiting things that somehow there's going to be change on the inside it is the exact opposite god changes us from the inside this was why in the sermon on the mount when jesus was talking about sexuality and sexual desire you remember he said, man, you've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, whoever lusts after a woman in his heart, he turns it from the outward physical to an inward heart behavior and attitude. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was confronted with a very culturally complex issue. The, the issue was divorce. The issue was divorce. And so the Pharisee, this Pharisee comes to Jesus, and the Pharisee is just looking to test him He doesn't really care what his his real belief is. He just wants to trip him up. And so, you know, divorce at that time in the culture was, like I said, really what had happened was the culture was determining what marriage should look like instead of God's Word. It had come to the place where um, rabbis tell us that if a woman was making, a wife was making your breakfast and she burnt your toast and overcooked your eggs you could submit a certificate of divorce to the religious authorities. Like, could you imagine that? You're like, man, I'm done with you, woman. I'm done. Like, you burnt my toast for the last time. And she's like, I'll burn your toast. I'll, I'll, I will burn your toast and I will cook your eggs. That did not come out right. But you know what I'm talking about. So, so he's presented... He's presented with this question. And Jesus, this is what He does. And I love this about Him, right? He goes back to the creation account. He goes back to the creation account. The Bible says in verse 4, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God... What therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. Let me just read a little further. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let me just say what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, you guys, I know we've got a book, it's all fable, myth, and fairy tale, and, but there's some good principles in it. And He doesn't present the creation story like that. He, he presents it as fact, he presents it as truth, and he presents it as authority. He presents it as a, an authority over their lives. And what he says definitively here, as you read what he says, is this. When it comes to marriage, the culture doesn't define marriage, God does. Like the, the, you guys have gotten off track because you've not taken your cues and your understanding from God's Word all the way back from the creation account. Doesn't matter what people believe is okay all around you. What matters is what God says. And so you see as, as we read the words of Jesus, He emphasizes the intentionality of purpose and the like opposite nature of male and female he clearly identifies the gender difference as divinely intended as a key cornerstone of marriage he says here the marriage bond is supernaturally created by god and we should not break what god has brought together you know i have the privilege of officiating wedding ceremonies and you know when i do lead people in their vows, I know God's doing something special. I know the presence of God is right there, and God is being faithful to His promise to cause the two to become one. Jesus also here identifies sexual immorality. He's talking about when divorce is permitted, and He says clearly that there is a prescription to not be cast aside by the Word of God. The Word porneia is used here for sexual immorality it's a very broad word that encompasses all sorts of sexual behavior outside of the prescription that's given by god in the creation account and there's no doubt that jesus is nodding back to the moral code of the torah jesus is shaping the lifestyle expectation that he has for his followers paul also looked back to creation in addressing and dealing with the sense of urgency that he had for people to put their faith in Christ. So we started at creation, we looked at the law, we've considered the words of Jesus, and now into the epistles, Paul also Paul also turned back to the creation account. You know, as you read the book of Romans, which is considered to be the magnus opus of of Paul, right? This is the the greatest theological work that Paul ever generated. And when you read the first three chapters, you, you can see that Paul sincerely believed in the power of the gospel to save anybody Romans chapter 1 verse 16 he's like man i'm not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ for i believe it to be the power of god unto salvation for all who believe like from paul's perspective and make no mistake about it the the gospel opportunity was inclusive not exclusive it was inclusive not exclusive in other words it was available for anyone And that's why then Paul says, for Jew and for Greek, for male and for female, for Scythian and for slave. And you can get from Paul this urgency in his message as he develops over the course of three chapters how we all are, listen to me, how we all are deserving of the wrath of God. Like he makes no bones about it, that humanity wholesale has rejected God as its creator, that we have supplanted God with ourselves and we've chosen self-worship, that we have shaped God after our own image and we've worshiped creatures rather than the creator, that we have rejected the divine order and we've denied the biblical sexual ethic to the extent that Paul says even their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, there are people who argue, and they say, well, Paul there knew nothing about meaningful same-sex relationships. He's talking about heterosexual excess. They say Paul's talking about exploitative sex, a power dynamic that's coercive. And, you know, let me just say that that all those things are wrong too. Excessive heterosexual sex, exploitative sex, sex with a power dynamic that's coercive. All of those things are also prohibited by God, but clearly Paul here is talking about mutually consenting same-sex relationships that have cast aside God's original intent and design laid out in the creation account. But I also want you to note that Paul goes on to say, Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. You know, I've taken some of the most challenging scriptures in the Bible dealing with this issue, and oftentimes they're called clobber scriptures because Christians will take these scriptures, they don't really, some, some Christians, don't care about the person that they're supposed to be ministering to. They just wanna take the Bible out and beat somebody over the head with it, right? And let me just say, God never gave you His Word to marginalize, to hurt, to cast aside, to reject, to make anyone feel that intrinsically they are so worthless that God would never give them the opportunity for salvation. That is not why God gave you, that's not why God gave you the Bible and invariably i've got someone present who's like doesn't like what i just said so let me tell you what paul said paul goes on to say right after he said what i just said he said he said and all other manner of unrighteousness he says evil covetousness malice they are full of who's that that's all of us envy murder strife deceit and maliciousness they are gossips they are gossips you're like, you're like, dude. I don't think that's the right translation, man. You got, what are you reading from? What are you reading from? I got a different translation. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Some of your parents are like, dang, man, why is my kid in children's ministry right now? I'll, I'll, let me go get him, pastor. I know you said PG, but they need they need to hear this. <laughs> Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Paul gives another list, not that you know you need one, but Paul gives another list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And Paul, of course, was writing to a city that was the geographic center for cultic sexual rituals. That's what, that is what Corinth was. And so everything that Paul says here was part of the culture that Corinth was living in. And this shouldn't be like, you should not, not get this, because Corinth was like Las Vegas. He says, "...or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God." And this is so beautiful, listen, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Man, that's, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. And I think that that's what we are as a church. It's like you could raise your hands, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, same-sex engaged relationships, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, right? God, God, who is that? I just would say, that's all of us. That's some point in that list has got to pierce your heart. Now, there are some who argue and say, hey, the word homosexual is not a good transla- translation. That word really refers to older men exploiting younger boys, pederasty, but the word arsenokoites literally, compound word, it literally means men in bed with men. Now, you might be thinking today, why all these lists? I mean, honestly, like I, I read this and I think, man, God, why all these lists? And God gives a list to show us how sin broken and fallen all of us are. These lists aren't given to us to identify one particular segment or subculture in our society and say that they're unworthy. This list is given to show us how much we all need the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. The fact is this, we can't, we can't see straight. We're like an episode of Cops, <laughs> you know, like in a lot of different ways. But we're like that episode of Cops, you know, you're watching Cops and the cops pull over some guy, he's been driving, he's swerving all over the place, you're like, oh man, I don't even have to know what happens next, this guy's drunk. And he gets out of his car and he's like, oh, officer, I'm so sorry, you know. Is something wrong and the officer's like man this guy is three sheets to the wind you're watching it you're like I was never that drunk in my life and so the guy you know he goes through the process the cop says hey you need to walk a straight line and so he starts walking a line he's so drunk he thinks this is the straightest line I've ever walked in my life right he's under the influence he's un- he can't even tell he can't even tell that he's stumbling all over himself and drooling like a fool because he's under the influence he can't see straight And I'm just saying all that to say to you, we are under the influence of our fallen nature. All of us apart from Christ are under the influence of our fallen nature. We can't see straight. We can't think straight. We don't understand it because there are impulses within us that we act on. And when we act on those impulses, maybe they're generated from the flesh, the old nature. Maybe they're generated from the pressure that's coming from the world. Maybe there's a supernatural force at work that's seeking to tempt us when you and I act on that in mind or body. It's called, in the Bible, sin. We're falling short of the holiness of God, but also for His intended purpose to be image bearers for Him. James says it like this, he says, let no one say, James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. I'm saying all of this to you to say this, this is why we all need Jesus. This is why we need the abundant life that He supplies. The deepest question today isn't what does the Bible say about sexuality? The deepest question is Jesus, is Jesus who He claims to be? The fact is every one of us are born sexually broken. If the creation account provides an understanding of our intrinsic worth, the cross provides an understanding of the depth of God's love for us and His ability to rescue us. God so loved us, God so valued us, God so esteemed the intrinsic worth that we have that He sent His Son who came, lived a perfect life, transcended the distance between heaven and earth, was born of a virgin, was the incarnate God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father lived a perfect life for our sake perfectly reflected the image of the father he said if you've seen me you've seen the father he died on the cross sacrificially as our substitute he who knew no sin became sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a lamb he not uttered not a word all of our iniquities, iniquity, excuse me, were laid upon him, and by his stripes we can be healed. He was crucified, he was buried, and on the third day he victoriously rose from the dead. God the Father saying that the sacrifice of Christ for the sin of humanity was sufficient. That sacrifice that was made once and for all, through. Through faith in Jesus, you can be redeemed, and He will establish love for God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He will establish the love of God as a first order love that exceeds all other loves. And then He will lead you to submit and surrender all second order loves. Love for others, love for self, love for things. He will lead you to submit those things into the first order love. The ethic Jesus gave us was not self-fulfillment, but self-denial. For the Christian, when we say no to self, we are saying yes to God, yes to something far better, God's love. Jesus said, whoever comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And when you take that step of faith, when you experience sincerely the love, the transforming power of God's love, when you live your life uh, in the sense where God and the love for God is a first order love that's when your marriage becomes fulfilling when you approach marriage based on the prescription of creation and you're not looking just to have your needs met but by God's strength you are looking to meet the needs of others that's when your marriage is fulfilling that is when your singleness is fulfilling When you can voluntarily choose to live a life of sexual purity because you are fully satisfied with the presence of Christ in your life. Sam Alberry, a same-sex attracted pastor and preacher and apologist that I, I respect a lot, he said this of his own spiritual journey. He said, I believe what I believe on all this because I believe what I believe about Jesus. If it was a choice between following an ancient religious leader or fulfilling my sexuality, it would be hard not to argue in favor of the latter. But this is not the actual choice I face. Jesus is not a religious leader from many centuries ago. I believe him to be my creator, the one who not only made me, but came up with the idea of me in the first place. He thought me up. He knows far, far better than I do how I should live. He knows me more than I know myself and loves me more than I love myself, enough to code himself into human DNA, live in this broken world, and face the worst of human suffering and pain. He said, I'd be a fool not to follow him even in this area of life, even given what he has to say about it. He died for me and rose again. He goes on to say a friend of mine has a framed motto on the wall of her office that says this, those who hear not the music think the dancers mad it's true to many people today the life choices i've made in the area of sexuality look bizarre even repressed but they make sense if jesus is who he claims to be